Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5, as we've hit the halfway point in this sermon series, Heart for the Kingdom. Looking at the book of Nehemiah, let's really quickly recap where we've been so far. So Nehemiah receives this, this mission from the Lord to go and to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. He has this conversation with the king where he gets his permission and he gets the resources that he needs to carry out the mission. Then we see in chapter 3 that the work gets started and he gathers together this, this great group of people, both diverse and unified, all working toward the same goal. Last week in chapter 4, we saw where things started to get difficult. We saw that there was opposition to the mission that Nehemiah had. And we saw how there were people surrounding, the nations all surrounding Jerusalem did not want this work to continue. And we saw their tactics to try to oppose the mission, whether that be through intimidation or through bullying or whatever else it might be. They were trying to get them to stop the work. And now we've come to chapter five. And here's the deal. Last week, we saw the external opposition to the mission. And this week, we are going to see the internal opposition to the mission. Nehemiah had been trying to deal with the problems outside of the wall, but that did not solve the problems inside of the wall. And you see, as followers of Christ today, we can expect the same. We have opposition both on the outside and opposition on the inside. And that which is on the inside is often a lot much more dangerous. But what was causing this opposition? What was causing this struggle internally? The answer, as we're going to see in this text, is greed. We're going to see how greed was dividing this community and compromising the success of their mission. We're going to see a dire financial situation that threatened to rip apart this community and put the work on the wall to a halt. So let me just be clear this morning. Here's the cards. Here's the table. Throw the cards on the table. Yes, we are going to talk about money this morning. And now that the exit is over there, if you guys are curious— I would ask that you don't stampede over there, though, uh, for the safety of people if you do try to flee. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I get it, guys. I'm not dumb. I understand that there's probably no other topic you'd like us to talk about in church le less than money. Actually, in fact, earlier this week, I saw a meme on Facebook that was a person making a face like, Ugh. and it was like, that face I make when I bring somebody to church for the first time and the pastor talks about money. I showed it to Megan. I was like, this is going to be our members this week. Uh, so, but here's the deal. I don't make any apologies, first of all, because the Word of God talks about it. And second, because here's the thing. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Jesus Christ is Lord of all. I used to grow up hearing a phrase. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And that means in our lives, there is nothing off limits for Jesus. Jesus gets to tell us as followers of Christ what it looks like to use our money in a way that glorifies God. And in this text that we're going to see this morning, we're going to see both sides of the spectrum. In the first half of the chapter, we're going to see an appalling example of greed. And then in the second half, we're going to see an incredible example of generosity. And this is my hope. I hope that as we study this text, the Lord will pry our hands off of the things of this world. And he would instead give us a heart to be generous for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of others. Because here's the thing, Matthew 6, 21. I'm going to quote this verse a lot in this sermon. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Guys, there might not be another clearer indicator of where your heart is with God than your bank account, than your wallet. 
the way that we use our money more clearly than anything else shows where our heart is. And so here's the roadmap for the sermon. First half of the sermon, we're going to walk through Nehemiah 5. We're going to see both the example of greed and the example of generosity. Second half of the sermon, we're going to pull out some principles from this text about how we as followers of Christ can be good stewards of the money that God has entrusted to us. So let me give you the main point this morning. Followers of Christ should glorify God with the way they use their money, choosing generosity over greed. With this in mind, let's start with just the first five verses to set the stage for what we're going to talk about. This is Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is what the Word of God says. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So, Father, we ask that you would now come and open our hearts and minds to receive what you would teach us from your word this morning. Father, I confess far too often my heart is gripped by the things of this world, by material things. Lord, far too often my heart is tempted with the love of money. Lord, help me to, to repent of that. Help me to see in this text this morning even more clearly a vision of what it looks like to choose generosity, to choose contentment. I pray that you would do that for all of us this morning, Father. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. I pray that you would help us to treasure you and your kingdom above all things, and that that change would be evident in every aspect of our lives, including our finances. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. Help us to understand this text more clearly that we might glorify you, for it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's jump in. Let's start by talking about the situation at hand. What is going on in this story? Now, verse 1, there arose a great outcry of the people against their Jewish brothers. There's a great uproar in the community, and the people are divided. Remember, it says against their Jewish brothers. So this is an in-house situation that's going on. We can read between the lines and see that there is a financial crisis going on in Jerusalem caused by a couple of different factors. One, we see that, uh, obviously we know that we've been studying this book so far, they're building a wall. And that building project is occupying all of their time. They're having to leave behind their normal labors in order to go and build this wall. That's number one. Number two, on top of that, apparently there's a famine in the land. So great timing. You're trying to build this wall, and there's a famine in the land. Oh, but wait, there's more. They talk about the king's tax here in these verses. Now, I did a little bit of research. In the Persian Empire, the tax could be anywhere from 20 to 40 percent. So, just to recap, you've got a famine, you're not working, and you have taxes of anywhere from 20 to 40 percent on all of your stuff. So what ends up happening? Verses 2, 3, and 4 give us three different situations that are going on here. Verse 2, you see workers whose families were destitute and needed food just to survive. They're saying, we've got all kinds of kids, we got big families, and we don't have any food. Verse 3, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. In other words, they have to sell even their homes 
just to be able to get food to survive during this famine. But, don't, but wait, it gets worse. Verse 4, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Who were they borrowing from, by the way? No, from their Jewish brothers. Remember, the outcry is against their Jewish brothers, verse 1. So you have the, the wealthy Jewish brothers, the wealthy landowners who are now lending against their fields so that they can pay their taxes. But what happens when they can't pay them back? And by the way, we're going to see later in the story, they're not just lending, they're lending with heavy interest on top of everything else. When they can't pay it back as payment, they're taking their children. They're enslaving their children. That's what we see in verse 5. It says, Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Can you see how horrible this situation is? You have large groups of people who are absolutely destitute because of the financial crisis that they're in. And instead of working together, instead of bonding together, instead of working together, they're saying, we're going to exploit the situation. We're going to make a quick buck off of this situation. We're going to lend to you, but you have to pay us back in heavy interest. And if you can't pay, oh, it's fine. I'll just take your kids. Greed is ripping this community apart. It is threatening this mission. And Israel is behaving just like the pagan nations around them. So how does Nehemiah respond? What's he going to do when he hears about this? That's going to lead us next to the resolution. How is he going to resolve this situation? Let's keep going. Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So let's walk through this. Verse 6, when Nehemiah heard about what was going on, he was very angry. This is an example of righteous anger. You know, there's a difference between sinful anger and righteous anger. I'd say because we're sinners, like 95% of the time, I haven't done the math, but maybe it's even higher than that. 95% of the time, our anger is sinful. It's usually, you've offended me, you've wronged me, and I'm going to get mad about it. But this is a rare example of righteous anger. Anger directed at an injustice. For Nehemiah, it would have been wrong not to be angry when he looked at what is happening in Jerusalem. But what does he do? This is a great thing that we see here. He says, I took counsel with myself. So before he goes, 
he processes. He doesn't fly off the handle. He processes it. He gets his emotions in check, but then he goes and he's direct and he's clear. He brings these charges to the nobles and officials and says, you are exacting interest, each from his own brother. Now, when we first read that, we might think, why is he so upset? It's just interest. Like we're used to interest in our culture. You know, you've got an interest rate on your mortgage. You've got an interest rate on your car loan, on your credit card or whatever else. What's the big deal about interest? What we need to understand is that in the Old Testament, for the nation of Israel in covenant with God, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God had commanded them not to charge one another interest, but to be generous with one another because of how God had been generous with them. For example, look at Exodus chapter 22, verses 25 and 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is a cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In other words, he's saying, don't charge interest. And if you have to take something that is necessary for them to survive, give it back. But they're taking even their own homes, even their own children. Likewise, in Leviticus 25, it says this, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Think about that. That is the law that they were accountable to. He's saying, if he becomes poor, invite him into your house. Instead, they're taking their houses and taking their kids. Verse 36, Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. I want to skip forward to verse 42 here in Leviticus 25. He's talking about the people, and he says, For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Think about the history of the nation of Israel. Think about it. God had brought them out of Egypt— from where they were slaves, he had made them into a great nation. And now here they are, a thousand years later by Nehemiah's day. The nation of former slaves are now enslaving themselves. They are now acting like Egypt in this story. This is what breaks Nehemiah's heart. You're taking interest and you're enslaving your own brothers. So Nehemiah confronts them and it says they were silent. They couldn't find a word to say. And he tells them, let us abandon this. Not only that, let us abandon this and let us return the things that we have taken. See, that's true repentance. It's not just, I promise I'll quit it. It's, I will do whatever it takes to make it right. That's what he says. And praise the Lord, the people listened and they repented. And Nehemiah now makes them promise. And then he does kind of a weird thing when you first read it. Verse 13, he kind of walks over to him and does this empties out his pockets, empties out the fold of his garment. And then he says, that's what God's going to do to you if you don't actually do this, if you don't do what you promised. So we see that this situation brought on by their greed that was threatening to rip apart the community has now been resolved. And at the end of verse 13, all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. Don't you see that repentance and unity among the people leads to a response of worship? It leads to God being glorified. 
But in the second half of this chapter, we now see Nehemiah as an example of generosity. As an example of generosity. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So Nehemiah, he is the governor of Judah for 12 years. And he tells us about these governors that had come before him, how they would tax the people on top of the taxes they were already paying to the Persian government. He talks about this allowance of food that was given to the governor. He talks about how the others had acquired land. And he says, I didn't do any of that. He had the rights to do that. He had the position to do that. Those were privileges that came with his position, and he chose not to do them. Why? Because he chose to serve. Guys, this is what biblical leadership looks like. It is about using the authority that God has given us in order to love, to protect, and to serve rather than to take. Jesus said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's what Nehemiah is modeling for us here. And why does he do this? Verse 15, I did not do so. I did not lord it over the people because of the fear of God. There's twice in Nehemiah chapter 5, he mentions the fear of God, this reverential awe and fear and respect of God that motivates us to walk in holiness. I want you to think about it. This is a powerful motivation for obedience in this text, and it's mentioned twice in Leviticus that we just read. Think about the fact that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is omniscient. He's everywhere. God knows everything. That means there's never been a thought that's run across your mind that God doesn't know. There's never been a word that we've spoken that he doesn't know. There's never been an action that we've ever done that has ever been done in secret. And one day God will hold us accountable for our lives. That should create a healthy reverence and a healthy fear in us that motivates us to walk in obedience to the Lord. Finally, verse 18. I did not do this, one, because of the fear of God, but two, because the service was too heavy on this people. He knew what his people needed. He knew what was best for them. And so he said, I am not going to do this. I'm not going to demand my rights because it would be too hard on them. He put the needs and the desires of others first. So we've walked through this story. We've walked through Nehemiah chapter 5. And now that we've done this, I want to now take a step back. I want to pull out from this text four principles that we learn about how us as followers of Christ can be good stewards of the money that God has entrusted to us. So 
Let's spend the rest of the sermon looking at four different things about how Christians should use money. First of all, let me give you this one. Be a steward because it all belongs to him. First principle in how we should use money, be a steward because it all belongs to God. I think that Nehemiah had this awareness. It is the fear of God that motivated all of this. It all belongs to him. This is foundational. Before we can even think about generosity and greed, before we can even talk about money, you have to understand that word stewardship. It's so important. What does it mean? A steward is not an owner. A steward is a manager. A steward manages something on behalf of the owner. And you need to understand something. God is the creator of everything. Therefore, God is the owner of everything. God owns everything. As it says in Psalm 50 verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So the starting point for a biblical perspective on finances is this. There's no such thing as my money. There's no such thing as your money. It's all God's money. Amen? It's all God's money. He entrusts some to me so I can use it for his kingdom and for his glory. But at the end of the day, it's all his, not just 10% of it, 100% of it. It's all God's. It all belongs to God. He has stewarded it to us to use for his glory, and he will hold us accountable for how we have used it for his glory. That's just foundational. It's the, the thing that's underneath everything else. But next, and I want to spend some time on this one, be generous because your spending reveals your heart. Be generous because your spending reveals your heart. Nehemiah is set forth as an example of generosity in this text. Remember, he did not demand his rights as governor for taxing the people when he could have exacted 40 shekels of silver per person. He didn't use his position to acquire more and more land, though we've seen kings in the Old Testament do this. Remember King Ahab with the vineyard that he desired, and he went and got it. He didn't acquire more land. And think about this one. It says in the end of the chapter, there were at my table, verse 17, 150 men, Jews and officials, and it was prepared at my expense for each day. Now, how many of you guys like to host people in your home? You know, you like hospitality. You like to have people over for dinner, uh, all that kind of stuff. I see you, Max. I know he does. Uh, so listen, I, you know, we don't do it real often. We're not great at cooking. We're working on it. But here's the deal. Um, I'm guessing that it would not be cheap to host 150 people every day. Just, I, again, I'm not an expert. I, I'm just guessing it would not be cheap to host 150 people every single day. That's what Nehemiah did every day. He's hosting. This is an incredible, lavish example of generosity. And that's not even coming from the governor's food allowance, because remember, he didn't take that either. It's all at his own expense. In the same way, guys, as followers of Christ, we are called to be generous. And I want to give you three reasons why. As I've already said, the first and most foundational reason is that the way that we use our money reveals our heart. The way that we use our money reveals where our heart is with God. You know, it's easy for us to make a profession of faith as Christians, to say, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead. It's even easy for us to say, okay, I can come to church once a week and all this stuff. But I've heard it said before that there are two things that more clearly than anything else reveal where your heart is with God. Your bedroom and your bank account. Vody Bauckham likes to say, and I say it a lot, you can't say Amen. You ought to say, ouch. 
right? What we do in our bedroom and how we use our bank account more clearly than anything else, reveal where our heart is with God because those are often the two hardest areas for us to surrender and say, God, I submit to you. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21 is huge. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, follow the treasure and I'll find your heart. And let me, let's do a thought experiment together. Okay, you ready? Let's say that someone who has never met you, never met your family and knows nothing about you, that person was given access to all of your financial statements for the past year. So bank statements, credit card statements, you know, whatever else. Would they be able to tell that you were a Christian? Would it look any different from the world around us? Guys, the way that we spend our money, Jesus tells us, it reveals where our heart is with God. But the next reason we should be generous is because it pleases God. God is pleased with our generosity. It brings joy to the heart of our Heavenly Father when we trust Him enough to be generous with what we've been given. Just like it pleases me when I see my kids be generous with each other, and it pleases me because it's so rare. But just as it pleases me to see their example of generosity, it pleases our Heavenly Father. You know, this is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I love verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You hear that? He's saying God didn't want us to give like, oh, I guess I have to, Ugh. reluctantly or under compulsion. It doesn't please God. It says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. It brings delight to God's heart when our hearts have been so changed that the question is not, oh, do I have to? How much? But how much can I so that I can make a difference for the kingdom and that I can bless other people? Finally, generosity is a way that we love other people. You know, looking at this text, the, the problem in the first half of this text is one of the most extreme examples of greed that you'll ever see. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than you are in the middle of a crisis charging a heavy amount of extra interest, and when they can't pay it back, enslaving their children. Like, it doesn't get much worse than that in terms of greed. So we might think, okay, Pastor Nate, I've never done that, so I'm good. I'm off the hook. Well, let me suggest to you that there are times every single day where we fail to love others with our resources. How many times do we see a need and have the means to meet it, but close our heart? Listen to what 1 John 3, 17 says. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So in light of all of this, let me give you three practical ways that we can pursue generosity as followers of Christ. Piggybacking off of that last reason why, first of all, let me tell you, give to others. Man, be generous with the people in your life. When you see a need, especially in the church, because we're a family in here, when there's a need, seek to meet that need. Be generous. Guys, this is what small groups are often for. Guys, we could be here all day if I started telling you stories. 
because I've been a part of them and I've seen them and I've heard so many stories where there's a small group and there's a person in that group who uh, a situation came up, a financial need came up, and that small group rallies around that person and loves and serves and helps them. And it always warms my heart when I hear it. Guys, leave margin if you're able to be able to bless other people when there is a need. So first, give to others. Second, let me encourage you. I believe that the Word of God teaches us that followers of Christ should be generous with the local church, that we should give to the church. Here at Coastal, we believe that tithing is a great starting place of generosity. It's a biblical principle that we give 10% of our income to support the ministry of the gospel at the local church. And I'd encourage you, I know for some of us, we hear that and like, man, there's no way. Let me encourage you. My wife and I made that commitment in our lives long ago, and I've never missed a meal. You can tell. God provides for us. He meets our needs. Even when it doesn't make sense, we have those stories. I'm sure a lot of you have them too, where we're like, I don't know how it's all going to add up this month. And then a check comes in the mail. Like God always provides. Let me encourage you to make that commitment, to make that say, Lord, I want to support the ministry of the gospel and our family is going to make that commitment to tithe. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention here the vision laid out by our senior pastor two weeks ago when Pastor Sean spoke to us about this endowment. Guys, I am so excited about this because it's going to be an opportunity for us to lay the foundation for the future of ministry at Coastal for decades to come. I mean, think about it, guys. Look around this room. Look around this building. Look at what God has done for us here at Coastal Gloucester. Don't you want to see what God has done here continue to grow and continue to go across the community? I'd encourage you to prayerfully consider how God would have you support the ministry of Coastal beyond going forward through the endowment. Lastly, generosity is not just about money. There are many ways that we can be generous. At Coastal, we like to say time, talent, and treasure. So aside from money, are you being generous with your time? Are you making time for others? Are you serving others? Are you serving in the church? Or maybe it's being generous with a talent. There's an ability that the Lord has given you. Are you using that for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of serving and edifying the church? So I want to give you two more this morning. The next is be careful. Flee from the temptations of money. We've seen be a steward. We've seen be generous. Now it's be careful because money leads to temptation in our lives. I need to, we need to understand this. Money in and of itself, it's a tool. It's a resource. It's neither good nor bad. But because we're sinners, we are so often tempted to sin with our money. We are so often tempted into difficult situations because of money. And I want to give you three that are very common and very significant. The first is debt. Let's talk about debt. Now, in this story, the people were forced into debt because of a terrible situation that they were in, because of the famine, because of the high taxes from the king, uh, and because of the work that they're doing on the wall. And then it just got worse because of, the, uh, because of the other wealthy Jews who are exacting interest from them and enslaving them. They were forced into debt because of a horrible situation. And in our culture, tragically, that's true. I know many people who, because of one thing or another, have been forced into debt because of a financial crisis, and that's horrible. And if that's you, make sure you come and talk to us, or we want to help you here at Coastal find a path toward financial freedom. But for others, sometimes it's not that we're forced into debt. Sometimes it's just that we're irresponsible, and we swipe the credit card when we don't have money to pay for it. Guilty. 
right? Like sometimes we struggle and we get into debt unnecessarily. And that's a major problem in our country, guys. As I was researching for this sermon, just over the summer, the United States finally went over $1 trillion in credit card debt. And the Bible speaks about this very clearly. Proverbs 22, 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. He's saying that debt is enslaving. It leads to stress and frustration. It leads to tension in marriages. That's why financial problems can be one of the leading causes of divorce in our nation. It cripples us so that we don't have the resources to be generous, to do what we just talked about with being generous. So let me encourage you, if this is you, if you're struggling with crippling debt, we'd love to help you find and take steps toward financial freedom. We have spiritual formation classes that we offer periodically about learning good financial principles. And we have people here, if you're struggling, that would love to counsel you and talk with you and work with you to help you find financial freedom. You can write that on your Connect card or come and speak with me after the sermon. Man, I'd love to help you get plugged in. The next I'd like to talk about is greed. Or we could even use the word materialism. Loving the things of this world. This was the problem in this story. Greed compelled those who already had plenty to take even what little the others had. This was greed. And the Bible is very clear on the dangers of greed, what it calls the love of money. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that, that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Can't you see how dangerous the love of money is? Let me tell you, if you are tempted toward materialism, I would define materialism as this treadmill lifestyle. It's this lifestyle that says, I gotta have more. I gotta have a bigger car. I gotta have a bigger house, a bigger TV, the newest iPhone, more clothes, whatever it is. I find my joy and my identity in what I have. If that's you, let me tell you, first of all, it's not gonna work because whatever that new thing you get, you're gonna be tired of it in a few months and want something newer. But then second, it is a trap. Let me encourage you, if that's you, repent of the love of money and learn to be satisfied in Christ alone. But there's one more and it's anxiety. What about anxiety as it relates to money? You know, Nehemiah chapter 5 begins with these words. Now there arose a great outcry, a great outcry because of this situation. Can I suggest to you that, that that outcry can be heard in our culture today? According to one survey that I read, 77% of Americans reported being anxious about their financial situation. 77%. That means statistically speaking, if we were to do a silent poll in here, how many of you are anxious about your financial situation? Like three-fourths of us would say, me. It's so common. Financial anxiety can be crippling, but I want you to hear the words of Jesus. You know, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, one of the most famous sections of the Bible on anxiety. But here's the deal that I often missed a lot of times when I studied that passage. It actually comes in the context of money. 
It comes in the context of money. Let me show you what I mean. I want to back up to a verse before. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now verse 25, therefore, all right, we've done this so many times. I've trained you guys well, I hope. When you see the word therefore, you need to ask, you guys are so good. What's it there for? It means that it's pointing back to what came before. Verse 25 is not the start of a new section. It's a conclusion to the previous section. He says, you cannot serve God in money. Therefore, on the basis of that truth, do not be anxious about your life. Doesn't that put that passage in a new light? He's saying when we choose to serve God rather than serving money, rather than loving money, God promises to meet our needs. And it frees us from this anxiety that says it's all up to me to figure it out. Man, how am I going to make sure I have enough? How are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? He says, when you choose to serve God rather than money, you no longer need to worry because God will provide for our needs. So be careful. Flee the temptations of money. Final point, be content because God will provide our needs. Be content because God will provide our needs. Why didn't Nehemiah lord it over the people? Why didn't he demand what he thought was rightfully his? Now, the text tells us because of the fear of God, and it tells us because it was too heavy a burden on the people. But I think underlying all of that was a baseline of contentment that says, I have what I need, so I don't need to crave for more. I want to show you just a few scriptures. This is what the Bible says about contentment. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. I want you to think about it, even if you're not gaining anything, because contentment's being happy with what I have. He says contentment is of itself a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Why can we be content? Because God has promised to provide. Philippians 4.19 And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the deal. I want you guys to memorize this verse. Write it down. Memorize it. This is a promise from the Word of God, and I want you to think in those moments when you're tempted to be anxious, you're tempted to be stressed, you're tempted to be greedy and to crave. I want you to say to yourself, you know what the Word of God says? It says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, it doesn't say every want. It says every need. Everything that we need to glorify God until he chooses to bring us home, he will provide. There's nothing more beautiful than contentment. Let me tell you guys, more joy is not going to come with the newest iPhone. It's not going to come with the, the newer car, with the bigger house. All those things will be in a yard sale one day. That's a cheery thought. But here's the deal. Joy and satisfaction don't come with more and more. It comes with being content with what God has given being satisfied with what God has done. Contentment frees us from the bondage of greed, that craving for more and more. Contentment frees us then to be generous with what we have, to be open-handed with others instead of feeling like I need to hoard it all for myself. Contentment view, frees us to view all of God's blessings as something to be stewarded for his glory and for his kingdom. And at this time, I'd like to invite up both the prayer team and the worship team 
as we're preparing to close. We're going to close with worship this morning. But, but as they're coming forward, there's one thing that's very significant that I haven't talked about yet. I feel like I've, I've looked at this text. We saw the example, and I've told us what we need to do. We need to be stewards. We need to be generous. We need to be careful. We need to be content. But there's one really important question I haven't asked yet. How do you do any of that? How? How do you take a heart that has been gripped by the world, that craves the things of this world, that is selfish, that only wants to live for my comfort and my pleasure and my desires, how does that heart become generous? How does that heart become content? Any, any guesses? Starts with a J, five letters. Jesus! the gospel. That's always the answer, by the way, in case you're curious. It always comes back to that. Guys, until your heart has been changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will never truly be generous from the heart. Sure, you can clean up your behavior every now and then, but from the heart, the only thing that can pry our hearts away from the things of this world is Christ. This is how he does it. Just as Nehemiah had it well within his rights to demand from the people, but instead he gave to the people. So in an infinitely greater way, Jesus being the son of God had every right to lord it over us and demand from us. But instead he came into this world to give to us, to serve us, to be generous with us. Philippians chapter two, verse four. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, though he was God himself, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Church, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He came to this world to die for our sins and rise from the dead that we might be forgiven. The reality is that you and I owed a debt that we could never repay, an incalculable debt, an infinite debt. But Jesus came and he paid it all on the cross. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here's the deal. When our hearts have been transformed by that gospel, by that message, the question is not, man, like what can, how much can I give to get away with it? It's how could I not be generous with the God who has been so generous with me? My heart has been so changed that now I want to use what I have to love and serve you rather than hoard it for me. It is the gospel that makes us truly generous. When we've received the generosity of God, we begin to reflect it in our own lives. It's my heart and my hope that we would be a church that reflects the generosity of Christ in our lives and in our relationships. Let's close with prayer. Lord, how often we fall short. 
how often I fall short, how badly we need you. Lord, we thank you that though all of us have been selfish, we've been greedy, we've lived only for ourselves. Lord, you have been so generous with us, giving us the very best, your own son. So God, I pray that our hearts would be so gripped and captivated by Christ that we couldn't help but be generous with those around us. Break the bonds of greed and materialism in our hearts even now and give us a heart and a desire to love you and to love others and to be good stewards of the resources that you have entrusted to us. Lord, we love you. Bless us as we go from this place. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.